our scripture text this morning is from Revelation 11, but because of the time frame here, I'm going to do this a little bit differently. So I'm going to do kind of the introduction to the sermon now, and then we'll sing um, Beautiful Savior, and then I'll do the part of the sermon where I will actually read the text, and we will walk through it together following that song. So it's going to be a little bit different this week, but um, in the sermon two weeks ago, we finished chapter 11 of Revelation, as much as you can say that you have finished anything in this book. And we wrapped it up by looking, as we've been trying to do through the series, at the portrait of Jesus that is found there in Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So there we have that picture, that revelation. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and at the conclusion of that doxology, and this doxology happens to end at almost the midway point of the book of Revelation, we read in verse 19, God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So more of what hopefully by now is familiar to you, decreational language. Not that there's literal thunder and lightning and an earthquake and heavy hail, but that these sorts of things represent how creation is rattled. If you want to read about it some more in the last couple of chapters of Hebrews, God says, yet once more will I shake heaven and earth, and he's not talking about shaking heaven in a literal sense. He's talking about how these things are subject to his will, to his sovereign power. More than that, though, there is that picture of the Ark of the Covenant, which has now appeared behind the veil. The veil has been opened, and we look into um, God's throne room where Christ himself is, according to the author of Hebrews, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not men. If you're a fan of The Wizard of Oz, you might remember that scene in the movie where Oz, the great and terrible, is you know the big floating head, and then the dog pulls the curtain. And the man is standing there behind the curtain, and he sees that they can see him, and he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, unlike that, in this case, we are here very specifically to do just that. This is exactly the reason that we have come to this book, to the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have come to pay attention to the one behind the curtain. We have come to ascribe unto him the glory that is due his name. Because as we have seen, and we have seen this repeatedly, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. He is the perfect sacrifice given once for all for the forgiveness of our sins. He is the faithful high priest who offered his own blood before the throne of God for us and for our salvation. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the fulfillment and the fulfiller of God's covenant with his people. And that's the significance of that ark appearing in heaven when the curtain is thrown back and he is king of kings and lord of lords. And that 
always merits Handel's interpolation, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, forever and ever. Hallelujah. Having said that, I seriously thought about skipping over chapter 12 because we kind of looked at it at Christmas time, the Sunday right before Christmas. But since this vision in Revelation chapter 12 really sets the stage for the rest of the book, I decided that we need to go over it again, not just to look at the text, which we will do a little bit later, but also to get back in line with some of the interpretive ideas that we have to keep in focus as we go along, if we're going to understand this. Next week, if the Lord is willing, we're going to be talking about the beast from the sea and the beast from the land and the mark of the beast. And Revelation 13, nothing to do with the number, but Revelation 13 is where so many people have really gone astray in terms of understanding what this book is about. So many people have launched into chapter 13 and come away afraid and confused and wondering, what is the mark of the beast? Could I possibly receive the mark of the beast without knowing it? What happens if I do these kinds of questions? The answer is no, <laughs> you cannot. You cannot. If you belong to God, you have been sealed on your forehead with the name of Christ and the name of his Father. You cannot accidentally take the mark of the beast. But that's why we have to have some background here. So we come back to the idea, as in all of Scripture, context is king. Context is king. This book was written in the first century. And its primary audience was the seven churches in Asia Minor. And I know that you can't read the names and really see all the details of that map. But what you can tell is that that is not Canada. And those people were not us. This book was not primarily written to people in the 21st century. It was written to people in the first century who lived in the seven churches that were located in that part of Asia Minor. We need to remember this because that means that whatever we find here, and that includes a certain beast that we will first meet next week in chapter 13, whatever we find here has to be interpreted in a way that would have made sense to the people in Asia Minor almost 2,000 years ago. We saw at the beginning of this study that there was a promise of blessing. And that promise of blessing was for the one who reads and the one who hears and the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. That was not intended for us exclusive of the people who first received it. It was intended, first of all, for the brothers and sisters of ours in Christ Jesus who died in the first century. At least as much, if not more so, than it is for us. And of course, this passage on the board brings us to a, non, a, a related matter. We take our time cues for the book of Revelation from the context of the book itself. If you had a study Bible with you or at home and you look it up, chances are really good that the suggested date of this book is going to be A.D. 96. We have no way of knowing that. 
Um, there are some church traditions about when John was imprisoned on Patmos, and we kind of interpolate from some of that, and we come up with some ideas, but a lot of it is based on some very ambiguous statements from the church fathers, and the church fathers are not always reliable witnesses anyway. They are not scripture. But within scripture itself, we have evidence, and other commentators point to this evidence, which is internal to the book of Revelation itself, and strongly suggests, for a number of reasons, a date before A.D. 70. Now, I'm not going to go any further into that at this point, but I'm hoping next Sunday, if the Lord is willing, that we will get our Sunday evening study going again, and that will hopefully be in some sort of a live and hybrid format, format so just watch for the links on the internet, and these are the kinds of things that we might take up in that study. Either way, whether it was written before AD 70 or in AD 96, either way, when we read that statement in chapter 3, for the time is near, that's not being spoken to us in the 21st century. This revelation comes to these people in the first century and they are told the time is near. If you, you know, my, my wife were to ask me, when are you going to finally get around to this little repair in our house in Brandon or something along those lines? I said, don't worry about it, the time is near. Well... According to the way some people interpret the book of Revelation, as long as I get around to it sometime in the next 2,000 years, you know, which is probably about how long it'll take anyway, but the time is near and these things will happen soon. They're spoken to real people in real churches and they're spoken in ways that were meant to bring comfort to them and take that in context with chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. We look at all of these things together and they pop up at various places in the book. We have to come to the conclusion that much of what we find predicted in this text is actually going to be history to those of us who live two millennia later. And that shouldn't be troubling or surprising to us at all. It actually should come as great comfort. Much of Isaiah, for example, was predictive at the time that it was written. But the whole book of Isaiah is history to us. Does that mean it's irrelevant? Clearly not. It's very, very relevant because the book of Isaiah clearly demonstrates how God works out his purpose in history by always keeping the covenants. God always keeps his promises. You may have heard that before. He always has, and he always will. So when we read of prophecy that was made at a certain point in history and then fulfilled, and we look back at that from our perspective, we say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. He keeps his promises. He kept them to Abraham. He kept them to Isaac. He kept them to the people of Israel. He will keep them for us as well. And it highlights the importance of the basic approach that we take in coming to this book. Now, often, in interpreting the book of Revelation or reading commentaries on the book of Revelation, you're going to hear people talk about the pre-millennial point of view 
the ah-millennial point of view and the post-millennial point of view as means of interpreting this book. Those are schools of thought that are based on the first six verses of Revelation chapter 20, which may be, especially if we take them as our starting point, one of the more difficult passages in the book. Now we're going to have a second plug. I try not to do this, but I'm going to do a second plug here. We're going to have an opportunity in a couple of weeks on a Thursday evening to dig a little deeper into this pre-ah and post-millennial idea with a video that we will show here at the church. We will also put that up online for people to watch by way of a Zoom call. So not going to dig real deep into that today. What I'm going to say is that for now, a better starting point would be, and if you're wondering why I am focusing on this starting point now at the midway point of the book, it's because Revelation chapter 12 is such an excellent place to see it, and it's going to be very, very important when we get to chapter 13 and following. Anyway, there are essentially four schools of thought on the prophecies of Revelation, and to some extent, these apply to all the prophetic texts of Scripture. The first is what we would call a futurist approach. And by the way, if you're not, you know, if you're thinking, man, I wish I was taking notes, which you're probably not. But if you were, the manuscript for this morning is going to be available on the website a little bit later in the afternoon, so you can download that and have this in writing. But the first approach is called a futurist point of view. And it holds that a particular prophecy that we are looking at remains to be filled, fulfilled at some point in the future, hence futurist. The thing is, the futurist perspective applies to all predictive prophecy at the time that it is actually spoken. So when God appeared to Abraham and Sarah and told them that they were going to have a son, well, that was a prediction of event that was still future at the time that God spoke it. But we find that in the book of Genesis, which was written by Moses at the time of the exodus from Egypt, so by the time that prophecy is actually written down in Scripture, it's a thousand years fulfilled in the past, give or take. So a futurist prediction is given, but then it's fulfilled in history. And we read about it later. We have to get this. Because to understand certain expressions in Revelation, the time is near. For example, we have to remember that when the prophecy was given, when this book was given to the seven churches of Asia, the fulfillment of many of these things was still in the future for the people at that time. But like the promise to Abraham, it speaks to something which is history for us. A second approach is called the historicist. And this one, because of the name, can be a little bit confusing. A historicist isn't someone who is looking at a prophecy and saying, well, surely that was fulfilled in the past. They might hold that. But a historicist really looks at the prophecies of Scripture and this is where all millennialists find themselves. They look at the prophecies of Scripture and they believe that these are speaking of things that happened in the past and they might even be happening now and in some way they will happen 
again in the future. That they are fulfilled over and over. An example of this would be the beast in chapter 13 of Revelation. Context is king, right? So that beast has been interpreted by historicists as applying to just about every single godless empire and ruler of those empires that has ever been on the face of the earth. There are people who thought that France under Napoleon was Babylon in Revelation and Napoleon was the beast. And there are people who say, well, yeah, he was. And then later it was Germany and Hitler and maybe Russia and Stalin and China and Mao. I'm not going to go on or I'll get myself into trouble here. But the historicist says you see these points in history where the framework of this prophecy sort of fits with certain empires and certain leaders or in other ways as well. The historist is essentially looking both ways. Looking at the past for previous fulfillments, and at the very same time looking to the future for the next beast who might appear on the stage. Now another one, another way of approaching this book might be called the idealist or the spiritual kind of approach. And I really don't want to spend a lot of time on this one. But this understanding sees the whole book essentially as a lengthy, extended parable. And when you look at it in that way, you can interpret it however you want to to fit a particular situation. In this point of view, it's not really prophecy at all. It was really never intended to be taken as such. It's just kind of allegory. So we do with the book of Revelation what we might do with the Chronicles of Narnia and just say, well, Look how we can make this story fit into so many different settings in the modern world. If you want an illustration of this, this is what many people today do when they quote Jeremiah 29.11. In Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And it's a lovely verse. But instead of considering the context, context is king. The book of Jeremiah as a whole, Jeremiah 21, 1 through 10, and the 21 verses or so that follow that statement, and seeing what did that statement mean to the people that Jeremiah was speaking to at that time in Israel's history, People just pick it up and say, well, God is speaking directly to me. God is saying, I know the plans I have for you, David. Which is undoubtedly true. It's just not what that text of scripture is saying in any way. Actually, if you look at it, that would be a very gloomy text of scripture to apply to your personal life because God is saying to people who are about to go away into exile, many of whom are going to die in exile, you know what, I'm sending you off to exile. You had this coming and I'm not going to relent, but I know the plans I have for you, Israel, as a nation. I know the plans I have for you and 70 years from now, I will bring you back. Now, if you look at the numbers, 
the numbers who came home from exile in Babylon versus the numbers who were taken away and the numbers who were killed at the time of the exile, that promise really only applied to a very narrow spectrum of the people of Israel. But that's what we do with this idealist or spiritual kind of text. And it's not good, especially when that text, Isaiah 29.11, is misappropriated from the New International Version, which actually uses the phrase, plans to prosper you, and is then used as some sort of a proof text for the prosperity gospel, which it absolutely is not. Now, the thing is, there may be merit to all three of these approaches at a certain level. So I'm not dismissing them out of hand. But they all have to be balanced by a fourth view. They have to be balanced by the preterist view. Preterism essentially holds that depending on where you are in history, something which was spoken in Scripture in the future tense, the prophecy that Abraham would have a son, or the prophecy that Mary and Joseph would have a son for that matter, might have been fulfilled definitively sometime later in history. And those of us who live after that point don't look back at that prophecy as a prediction of something in our future. We look back at that prophecy as the prediction of something in the future of the people to whom it was spoken. Nobody... Well, nobody in this room, and hopefully very few people in the world, would argue that we should read the prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament and then go hang out at Bethlehem and wait for him to be born. It's not going to happen. Jesus was already born in Bethlehem of Judea. And all of those prophecies were definitively fulfilled at that time. And so if we start looking at prophecy in the book of Revelation or anywhere else in Scripture that has been fulfilled and looking for it to be fulfilled again, we are totally wasting our time on futile speculations. That, as a matter of fact, is what a lot of people who do not believe that Jesus was God's Messiah, the Christ, are doing right now. They're talking about, well, we can't wait for God to send the Messiah into the world to fulfill all these promises that he made to Israel in the Old Testament. The thing is, God already sent his son at just the right time, Paul says. Born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. I was listening to a sermon from um, Kevin DeYoung uh, just last week, and he said, so my introduction is about four-fifths of my sermon, um, and it was. In this case, that was probably close to half, um, which I try not to do, but um, let's look quickly at Revelation chapter 12 and apply the things that we've just been talking about. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, 
with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, to the get, to the land. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, another interpretive principle. Context is king. And that includes the context of the book. It includes the context of all of scripture. We also start with what we know. And with that in mind, interpretation is easy for us here. The male child that's being spoken of in Revelation chapter 12 is interpreted for us by Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession, and you will rule them with a rod of iron. And that psalm is quoted definitively in Acts chapter 13 and Hebrews 1 as being in reference very specifically to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The male child who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron can be none other than Jesus Christ. And having established that, the rest of it falls into place. The woman who gives birth to that male child could be considered as Mary, the mother of Jesus, but the way that she's described, clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars would lead us to conclude that this vision includes Mary, but it includes more, it's bigger. And it should be understood to be a reference to Israel, to the people of God, at the very least. And in other ways, this text should take us all the way back to the Proto-Evangelion, the promise of God to the serpent. God even keeps his promises to the serpent. In Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The word is, is more descriptive. The idea is he shall grasp you by the head and crush you in his grip. And that clarifies for us the identity of the dragon as well. Verse 9 in Revelation chapter 12 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So we have our characters pretty much figured out so far. There's a woman representing the people of God who's going to give birth to a male child who will rule all the nations. That child can be none other than Jesus Christ. And there's a dragon who's waiting to devour the child as soon as the child is born. The reference point for that would be Herod and the soldiers of Herod who were sent out to the region of Bethlehem and told, kill every male child from two years old and younger. Kill enough that hopefully we get that one. That well, was Herod as a political power, a political figure who gave that order. But behind Herod giving that order was the same evil principalities and powers that have been behind all godless governments. Satan gave the order to devour the child, but God protected the child. 
Now, up to this point in Revelation chapter 12, everybody is a preterist. We are not looking for this to be fulfilled at some point in the future. We read the words of John, we say, yeah, clearly, that's Jesus, that's Israel, that's Satan, this all happened 2,000 years ago, praise the Lord, he always keeps his promises, and that is the very definition of preterism. Prophecy, once predictive, of course, otherwise it's not prophecy, but prophecy, once it has been fulfilled, must be interpreted by those who come later within that historical framework. And if we start with what we know, like we did here, the male child is Jesus. That makes it a whole lot easier for us to start putting those other pieces together. What do you do when you put together a jigsaw puzzle? You find that thing on the cover that, well, I think that's going to be easy. That's a different color altogether. We'll get those pieces together. We'll put them together. You start with what you know, and then it's easier to fit the pieces around the edges of that part of the puzzle. So we start with what we know in the book of Revelation. Chapter 12 is an excellent place to start because it looks backwards and forwards from the middle of the book. And when we start with what we know, the rest of the passage isn't that difficult either. Verses 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth or to the land, and his angels were thrown down with him. And if we start with what we know, and we keep it in context, not only with the rest of Revelation 12 and with the book of Revelation, but with the rest of Scripture, then there's no reason to shift our perspective here. When did this happen? When was the dragon thrown down to the earth? Well, we saw it in our study of Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. Jesus had sent them out. He said, go out, preach the gospel of the kingdom, heal people, work miracles in my name. And the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So this passage is fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus and in the ministry of the disciples that he sent out to carry the gospel in his name. The doxology that begins in, cha in chapter 12, verse 10, goes on to say, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Reference the Apostle Paul saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony 
for they love not their lives even unto death. Here's a first hint at a slight change of perspective. Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And we can anchor that now in the words of Jesus himself. Between the resurrection and the ascension, he told his apostles, and you all know this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now have come. And the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. And we've met these saints and martyrs in verse 11 because scripture says Michael and his angels. Well, we always read angels and for some bizarre reason, we just have to think of them the way they appear on the cover of those magazines at Walmart that talk about angel visitations. Touched by an angel, you know, the kind. But the angels at the beginning of the book of Revelation are the pastors of the churches in Asia Minor. And angels through scripture, the word is really a pretty generic word. It means messenger. So it can be a powerful spiritual being who is sent out like the one in the days of Hezekiah. One single angel killed 185,000 people from a godless army that was attacking Israel at the time. They can also just be human beings. They can just be other people that God has sent with a mission. We've met those saints and martyrs before in Revelation 6-9. What about this next part? Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth, land, and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So, from the perspective of the original audience, this part seems to have a little bit more of a futurist appearance. John makes a statement, now has come, present tense, the salvation and the authority of our God and of his Christ. But in the course of that coming, Satan is cast down, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth, land, and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Watch the phrase, the time cue, for he knows that his time is short. So from the perspective of the original audience, this would appear to have a little more futurist appearance. Jesus declared, Satan has been cast down. I saw him fall like lightning from heaven in the ministry of the 72. By the way, if you have any questions about Isaiah 12, which has commonly been taken as referring to the casting of Satan out of heaven, come and see me. I don't have time to deal with it right now. That's not what Isaiah 12 is talking about. With the fall of Satan to the land and the sea. That is great news for the heavens. It is bad news for the inhabitants of the land. He fell with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. If you ever read Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, and you had some sense that the kind of overt demonic activity that is going on in the Gospels was probably a little something more, then what we are seeing in the world around us, you'd probably be right. In the life and death, 
resurrection and ascension of Jesus and in the ministry of his disciples, Satan was being thrown down and he did not go quietly. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now the woman, that would be the people of God, taken in a corporate sense. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. We'll deal with this at some point later on, but we run into these numbers. Time, times, half a time, three and a half years. 42 months, that equals three and a half years. 1,260 days, that equals three and a half years. And those expressions get used in Revelation for a purpose, and we will come to that eventually. Understand here, the people of God, as we consider them, the church of Jesus Christ considered as a whole, is absolutely indestructible. So if you're listening to what's happening on the news around the world, in countries where the church is being persecuted, in countries where there may be some oppression or repression of the church, fear not. The church taken as a whole is indestructible. Jesus said on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Local churches are not indestructible. Denominations are not indestructible, but the true church of Jesus Christ, considered as the body and bride, most definitely is. Verse 15 and 16 make that abundantly clear. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And then in that final cataclysm, <laughs> climactic statement. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are her offspring? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The same testimony that was used to overcome the dragon in the first place. So that is bad news for us. Because this part of the passage can be seen in a historicist light. And we as individual Christians, the people of God, we are the rest of her offspring. So what does that mean? That means that Satan is and always has been making war on the people of God. And since he cannot beat us in formation, he cannot conquer the armies of the living God the army of the Lamb who we're going to see on Mount Zion with his army, his host arrayed behind him, Satan will use guerrilla warfare to take us out one person at a time. That's why Peter said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. This whole passage, the whole book, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So think about the portrait. Think about the revelation of Jesus in this particular text. Where is 
Jesus in Revelation chapter 12. And to answer that question, we just have to go back to verse 5. The woman gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Remember the doxology when the dragon was cast down? Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Satan Maybe he is, in fact, at war with the people of God. And we're cautioned in this context and in others to be fully aware of this. Don't forget this, not ever. When you get up in the morning and you wash your face and you get dressed, remember to put on the full armor of God because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So be sober-minded. Be alert. Be watchful. But don't under any circumstances ever be afraid. Not ever. If you have trust in Christ alone, for your salvation, don't be afraid because your Savior is not only alive and well, waiting to come back and rescue you someday. Your Savior is enthroned at God's right hand in glory, and he rules the nations with a rod of iron, dashing them in pieces like bad pottery. And everything that's happening in this world around us is not happening in spite of that fact. It's happening because of that fact. In Christ's ascent to the throne of the universe, Satan fell and his wrath is great, but our God, our Savior Jesus Christ, is greater by an infinite magnitude. Our Savior Jesus Christ is Lord of the nations. Not just Lord of the Christians, Lord of the spiritual stuff. He is Lord of the nations. He is King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. So do not ever be afraid, people of God. This battle's won. And our God reigns. Don't be afraid of little things. Don't be afraid of big things. Don't be afraid of unknown things. Don't be afraid of anything. Our God reigns. There's one more thing. Next week we're going to come to chapter 13 and the beginning of 14 where we will find the church of Jesus Christ standing with our Savior on Mount Zion having his name and his father's name inscribed on our foreheads by the sealing, that's what that's all about, of the Holy Spirit of God. We will find that we who were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, have now been raised up with Christ and seated with him in heavenly Places, And we have been invited to what Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. That celebration of Jesus with his bride, the church. And in earnest of that, we are invited now to come to the table of the Lord to remember 
and believe that all of our sins are completely forgiven through the one infinite sacrifice of Christ's body and blood and to come to the feast with the risen and ascended king at the table of his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, convince us of the truth of your word that we may look to you not as our last desperate hope but as the savior of the nations, the king of the universe, the one who rules all things by the word of your power in such a way that your will is always accomplished to your honor and glory and praise. And convinced of that, help us to live for your glory. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.